Good morning. Good morning. Hey. That McDonald's commercial on the radio. Oh, that's so annoying. It it's stuck with. It goes, good morning, good morning. Oh, God. yeah, that's from, um, from, uh, yeah, Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain, yeah. Oh, uh, it's from McDonald's commercial. My it's much better in Singing in the Rain. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it is. Donald O'Connor, um, Gene Kelly, and is it Debbie Reynolds? Uh, I want to say yes. So say it. Look it up. Not popular enough for you, huh? <laughs> Not cool, just the borderline of the. Of no, I, I, Gene Kelly is all I remember. Yeah. Well, no, Donald O'Connor is totally fantastic in Singing in the Rain. Um, hi. This is Mary. Mary is a visiting scholar, um, and uh, just arrived at Brandeis from the People's Republic, and. Um, <coughs> We'll be here for like a year, right? Yes. And you come sit at the table. What? What? I don't know. I'm so tired. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to tell someone. I told you I'd forget that we didn't have class. I told you. you uh, it worked out perfectly, though, because I was like, crap, I'm going to miss class. And then... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, after class, you find out that you didn't miss class. Um, and there is one person who hasn't really been here since... Um, right. Deep winter. I guess it's still kind of deep winter. But oh, yeah. since, since January, I can't, I can't tell. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you say. I mean, if I if I took if I took attendance, I could tell. But it's pretty, I mean, obvious. do you know who it is? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it's, so not well, it's not so Rhoda. It's not Rhoda because she. No, because she emailed me asking about the paper. Oh well, so she made it obvious. <laughs> he or she. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> made it obvious. Or they. Anyhow, so I was wondering whether. I, what would make you think that? <laughs> well, it's okay. I said at the beginning of class that, that um, attendance wasn't, you wouldn't be graded on attendance, although it could help. Um, I did mention how it could help. Um, but, you know. Take a little early. It's fine. Um, when I was in college, this would have been too early for me to come to class. <laughs> like, by a lot, <laughs> to tell you the truth. You had your punch team training. Tang, tang. <laughs> there was that. There was that. Um, but there's also. Do we have class on April Fool's Day? We do. Um, just wondered. Were you prankster? Uh, I was not. No. Is this um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> what? Do you want me to pause it? No, I, think I, can... I say a lot of stupid stuff, and that's always on. All right. Wait. Let me. I'll pause no, it. No, don't pause it. No, pa I will no, pause it. And you can say something stupid. Also, I'm not going to say something dumb. I just really, I'm not going to say a coffin. I'm just going to ruin the whole podcast. It's all off the record. <laughs> okay. No, it's, yeah, it's off the record like that reporter in Arizona who said, oh, yeah, and he said off the record that, um, that he gets the questions beforehand. It was so interesting. And here's some other things he said off the record, she reported, the White House uh, press secretary. And then it turned out that she had misreported it anyhow. Okay, so we've done a little Herbert already. Um, and uh, we'll spend um, this week on Herbert as well as our optional makeup class. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you didn't hear the first part, right? Shh. <laughs> um, 
so um, I hope you're liking Herbert. Um, I th- there, there are a bunch of uh, really amazing poems to do by him. And um, we've done one of them already. Uh, we've done two of them already. We did Redemption and Church Monuments. Um, and uh, just to remind you about what was, I think, amazing about Church Monuments um, is just how modern it sounds, how conversational it is. Uh, the idea of that poem is sounding conversational is um, actually um, Coleridge's word for it. Um, but it doesn't sound in any way like the heightened language of poetry. And it also doesn't sound like 17th century prose. We've read a little bit of 17th century prose reading um, some of Dunn's um, meditations um, and sermons. Um, but Herbert's poem, which rhymes and which um, is just really, really deep, is also really, really um, um, untense. In um, There's no tension in the lines. And that's part of the point, that the slow... Um, experience, um, the slow and and peaceful experience of turning into dust is what he's describing there. And he does it in a style which is just um, at ease. Um, Not easy the way Ben Jonson is. That is, Ben Jonson's easiness is that everything is falling into place, and wow, that's amazing. Um, It's a kind of easy rapidity that you find in Ben Jonson. But Herbert's easiness in a poem like Church Monuments, do you you all remember it? That's... um, the all that use of the word dust, we we were comparing it to um, the hourglass to um, Johnson's hourglass poem, um, but it's when he goes meditating in the in the churchyard in the graveyard, um, and thinks about what he calls the good fellowship of dust and um, all the stones, all the gravestones, which. Um, the jeet and marble that are put for signs that will also crumble into dust. Um, And Herbert um, may be at least as much, possibly more, than anyone else that we're reading, um, is an amazing commander of of different poetic styles, um, different poetic voices. Um, He can um, write. What he is is he's an intensely meditative poet. He's also a priest. And um, he's therefore thinking really hard about all the different moods, emotions, needs um, of his parishioners um, and thinking about his reaction and his response to all those different moods, emotions, and needs. Um, the, what they need from him, what he's able to give them, what he's able to give them not um, as an authority so much as as a fellow um, Christian, um, as a fellow soul um, thrown into the world the way they are, as someone who understands the sorts of experiences they do. A poem, just to see, I mean, we've already seen something like that in Redemption, where he finds um, that the terms that um, uh, he's living and attempting to um, find salvation um, through are too harsh for him. Um, he can't meet those terms. Um, he looks for a new small rented lease. He looks to cancel the old. And then he finds out that 
well, whatever terms he's paying, Christ has paid even um, more exorbitant terms in order to redeem human beings. And um, the, um, that experience is one where, he, where Christ is suffering the way humans suffer. And in miniature, what that means is that any figure um, who ministers to the needs of human beings the way he does... Um, that ministry um, is possible because the minister is also someone who is having those human experiences and who's finding the terms of the ministry difficult, not impossible, but difficult. And um, that experience of difficulty is, uh, is part of what he's describing. Let's just, I think what we're going to have to rip through a few poems and then pause longer on, um, on some of the poems, which... I mean, they're just, they're just really amazingly great. Um, I did order the complete, Her, Herbert's Complete Poems in English, which I see none of you have. Um, and I figured none of you would have, so I brought this. But you should get it, um, the Penguin <coughs> edition. Um, just to tell you this, that most of his poems appear in a volume called The Temple, which was published after his death, but was almost certainly in the order um, the poems are almost certainly in the order that he wanted them in, and the idea is that the book itself is like um, a church that you enter and you go around to the various things that the church is about. And um, so the ordering of Herbert's poems is part of the architectonic of his presentation. Um, some of his followers, and he did have followers, um, wrote books like, like Steps to the Temple, um, which are meant to show to to show Herbert as the great poet, and what they're doing is um, contributing to the thing that he's doing. But take a look at the poem called Aaron, not because um, you'll love it, I don't think, um, but that so that you can see how it is that Herbert is thinking of his own vocation, not as a poet, but as a priest. Um, so this is on page two eighty three. Of, um, of the Norton, and it's just called Aaron. 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 As in A-A? As in A, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, gotcha. Yes. Um, Aaron H. <laughs> you got that, but no one else did. Um, who is Aaron in the Bible? Moses' brother. And therefore, or and all, and, and his position within the um, uh, Mosaic family was? A priest. Um, that is, so he, the, um, he is Moses' brother, also his interpreter, because Moses is um, a stutterer. And um, the um, first of the um, Israeli, Israelite priests. Um, so here, for Herbert, um, he is, oh, look at this, brother of Moses and first high priest. Um, for Herbert, what he's doing is... Uh, representing um, the very idea of priesthood. That is to say, you remember we talked a little bit about typology. Um, that is that in the Old Testament, you get figures and incidents and um, relationships that the actual technical word is prefigure New Testament and later versions of the same um, stories. 
Um, so you, everyone uses the word prefigure, but it's actually a word originally from theology. And what it means is that it's the first version of something that is going to be matched by a second version later on. Um, in the language of typology, the first version is called a type, as in prototype. Um, it's called a type, and its fulfillment is called an anti-type. That is, it's, the, um, it's when the other shoe of the type falls. Um, so the idea then, we talked about one aspect of this, is, is that when Moses strikes the rock and water comes out, that's a type in the Old Testament of a Roman soldier striking Christ and blood and water coming out of his womb. So without knowing it, all these Old Testament stories, when you read them from a New Testament point of view, you understand them better than they were understood by Old Testament readers <coughs> or by the people who experienced them. At the beginning of Paradise Lost, um, you have man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world, and all our woe with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seed. So Adam is the type of Christ who is the antitype, the new Adam, the greater man. Um, Christ is the antitype for a lot of different figures in the Old Testament, for King David, for example, um, and many others. Um, but first and foremost, he's the antitype for Adam. Adam is the, um, is the first man in the sense of chronology, and Christ is the first man both in the sense of chronology because he's before Adam as the son of God um, and also in the sense of hierarchy, the greatest man. Yeah. Also, I guess in the sense, since Jesus is the high priest, Right. Yeah. So for, for Protestant thinkers about typology, um, they think there's a third term that, that you need, which is um, sometimes they will see themselves as antitypes. Um, that is to say, for example, that if, they th if you thought, if they thought, um, as some of them did, that England in the 17th century was where the um, redemption and um, the um, end of times was going to take place, then the English people of the 17th century and the English Revolution would be the antitypes of the Israelites in the Bible. Um, more often, though, they would think of themselves as correlative types. That is to say that the same story occurs several times. Its final fulfillment is going to be um, in a grand biblical apocalypse or grand biblical resolution to all these stories. But in the meantime, you get different versions of prefiguration. The same thing gets prefigured more than once. And um, those different prefigurations um, are correlated with each other. So that if the children of Israel 
are compared to the um, English revolutionaries in the 1640s, it's not that the English revolutionaries are their anti-type, it's that they're correlative types. They're doing, again, something that already happened in the Bible, and all of this is um, a, a repeated um, um, background for what's going to be the final um, um, end of things, the final resolution of things. So the idea of Aaron as a type would make Herbert, who is a priest, a correlative type. That is, he sees in Aaron a figure whom he would like to emulate, not as Aaron's fulfillment, but as Aaron's companion, as another priest, as a priest whose priesthood derives originally, starts with Aaron, the first of priests. Um, so he begins by talking about Aaron, holiness on the head, light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest. Thus are true Aaron's dressed. So if you want to know what how Aaron should be dressed, he should have holiness on his head, light and perfections on the breast. Do people know what light and perfections is the um, standard translation of in Hebrew? It's Urim Vitumen, and it's, um, I believe, an obscure phrase in Hebrew. Um, um, and the translators thought it must mean something like ornamentation on the breast of the priest, maybe jewels of some sort. Um, but they weren't positive, and I think no one knows, although I guess you could ask Kimmelman. You should. Good. Yeah, no, ask him what, what's on Aaron's breast, um, or in Vitumim. Um, but it gets translated into English as lights and perfections, or light and perfections. Um, it is, <clears throat> if you look at um, the Yale motto, um, you know, there's Hebrew in the Yale motto, um, like in the Brandeis motto. Um, and in the Yale motto, the Hebrew, the Latin in the Yale motto is lux et veritas, and the Hebrew is orum vitumen. Um, so that's, um, if you ever look at the Yale seal, that's what you will see. Um, in Latin, the Hebrew is ms, um, or amat, you might say. Um, you might mispronounce it. Um, so... Um, that's a description from Exodus of how Aaron um, dresses, that he puts on this, um, this breastplate with lights and perfections on it. So holiness on the head, light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below, raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest. Thus are true Aaron's dressed. And then there's me. Profaneness in my head defects and darkness in my breast, a noise of passions ringing me for dead unto a place where there is no rest. Poor priest, thus am I dressed. So same rhymes, different words. And that's something that Herbert is amazing at, is thinking about the relation of rhyme to what he's writing. Um, so there's me, 
poor priest that I am. And the bells are ringing, um, but where they ring life, when a true priest is ringing them, they ring to eternal life. In my case, they ring simply the fact that I, um, they're, they're um, um, who you would send to know for whom the bell tolls. Um, that is, I am a person who will die, and I fear that I will go to a place where there is no rest, namely oh. hell. Yes. However, there's a way out of this. Only another head I have, another heart and breast, another music making live, not dead, without whom I could have no rest. In him I am well dressed. So thank God for God. Thank Christ for Christ. Christ is my only head, my alone only heart and breast, my only music striking me even dead. So now he becomes the bell struck dead, but so that he can live, that to the old man I may rest. The old man is um, who you are before salvation. Um, the old man is Adam who prefigures what we are before we are saved. That to the old man I may rest and be in him that is, be in Christ, new dressed, so holy in my head. Now he is, um, to use another one of his words, imping himself onto Christ, accepting Christ, dressing himself in Christ, representing Christ, and in doing so, um, seeking his own salvation by seeking to um, do for others what Christ wants him to do for them. So holy in my head, perfect and light in my dear breast, my doctrine tuned by Christ, who is not dead, but lives in me while I do rest. That is, while I remain, um, Christ will live in me. My doctrine is tuned. Um, so we've gone from harmonious bells to a noise of passions. If you look at the third line of each stanza, harmonious bells to a noise of passions, to another music, to my only music, to my doctrine tuned by Christ, who is not dead but lives in me while I do rest, where rest there means remain. Come, people, Aaron's dressed. Um, so notice how much the last stanza is itself a kind of fulfillment of the first stanza with a difference, which makes all the difference. That is, holiness in the head becomes holy in my head. Light and perfections on the breast becomes perfect and light in my dear breast. They're perfect as in perfected, um, made light not made bright, but made light. He's punning on those words. So it's not that light and perfections are on my breast. It's that um, perfect and light in my dear breast, made perfected by Christ, made light, that is no longer weighed down by sin, but made light. My doctrine tuned by Christ, who is not dead, as for a true Aaron, the harmonious bells below will raise the dead. So Christ has been raised. My doctrine tuned by Christ who is not dead. 
but lives in me while I do rest. So they will be led unto life and rest. Now that life becomes lives in me while I do rest, while I re- not while I have rest, but while I rest in this life. Notice he's using rest there as a verb, where before he used it as a noun, just as he's using light as an adjective, where before he'd used it as a noun. And then come people, Aaron's dressed, same last three syllables. Thus are true, Aaron's dressed. But the difference is that the first Aaron's at the end of stanza one is simply the plural. Thus are true Aaron's dressed. The second Aaron at the end of um, the at the end of stanza five is Aaron is dressed. Now notice because Herbert would have noticed this. This is the kind of thing that. You, you may well think is over-reading until you've read a lot of Herbert and then you realize that there is nothing that he didn't see going on in his own poetry. Um, there's nothing that um, he wasn't subtle enough and sensitive enough to be aware of and therefore to intend if he left it there. Um, Herbert's poems just open and open and open um, the more you read them. Um, that the apostrophe S in the last stanza, thus are true, um, excuse me, come people, Aaron is dressed, corresponds to what? Not sound-wise, but meaning-wise in the last line of the first stanza. Okay, yeah, um, I guess what I mean is which word in the first stanza is not by way of sound but by way of meaning closest in, closest in meaning to the is of that apostrophe S. Yes. That is, that apostrophe S yes is short for is. The S in plural, Aaron? No, 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 closest Thus. in meaning. Oh. Meaning. Uh. Look for a verb. R. R. Yeah. Aaron is dressed at the end because he's Aaron, singular. Look, here I am. Aaron is dressed. He has become Aaron at the end. Um, in the first line, so the apostro- so the plural to the singular, Aaron's to Aaron, takes place because the R turns to an is. And what he's partly thinking of is that shift from plural to singular, that's something Herbert is interested in over and over again, are shifts and connections between plurals and singular. That focuses you on the word are as well, um, as though Aaron is itself a singular containing the plural of the priesthood. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. So thus are true Aaron's dressed you're supposed to hear the R in Aaron in that first line, thus are true Aaron's dressed. And then in the last line, when the plural becomes singular, Aaron's, thus are true Aaron's dressed becomes, come people, Aaron's dressed. The plural to the singular you can feel in the R turning to an is as well, but the plural is still there in the word Aaron. 
not in the S at the end of Aaron, but in the R in the name Aaron. That's the kind of thing that he does over and over again. If, if only this poem survived, this would be over reading. But if you read a lot of Herbert, you will see how much he does this, how much he's thinking in this way. Take, a, take for example, um, just looking for what page it's on, um, on page 255. Um, you'll remember this, I feel certain, from English 11. Um, the poem Denial, um, which is uh, both poetically and theologically really interesting. Um, so it's an address to God, Denial. Not a river in Egypt, but an address to God. <laughs> Those bumper stickers are no longer around. Do you guys remember them? Denial is not a river in Egypt. No? Oh, wait, I've, I've heard my before. parents say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I went to a cafe press, but I gave up. But I really tried to um, get myself some bumper stickers that said, Denial is a river in Egypt. <laughs> but there's the question, should it be the Nile is a river in Egypt, or should it be denial? I don't know. <laughs> so, OK. When my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears. Who's the thy? Good, yeah. Um, when my devotions, you know that because he's showing devotion. When my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken as was my verse. My breast was full of fears and disorder. So what happens at the end of the first stanza? Yeah, and what about the sound of the first stanza? When my devotion it doesn't rhyme. Yeah, so we're rhyming away. When my devotions could not pierce again, person verse would actually have rhymed at the time. Um, when my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears. That's not the accent, but I'm just trying to indicate <laughs> how it might sound. When my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken as was my verse. My breast was full of fears. So that's, that's a true rhyme in Herbert's day, pierce and verse. So when my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken, as was my verse. My breast was full of fears and disorder. So what is and disorder doing? Bringing disorder to the rhyme. Yeah, bringing disorder to the rhyme. Um, and it's also metrically not right. That is, it's, if you're trying to feel the meter here, when my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken, as was my verse. That's metrically already a little bit hard. My breast was full of fears and disorder. So it's metrically and rhymically um, wrong. My bent thoughts like a brittle bow did fly asunder. Each took his way, some would to pleasures go, some to the wars and thunder of alarms. So you can hear it. You can hear how jarring it is. So um, you can 
feel how his thoughts are like a brittle bow flying asunder. A brittle bow, that is, you pull the bow, the wood is too brittle, um, you pull the bow, and the whole thing just snaps in your hand. I hate when that happens. <laughs> um, but that's what he's describing here. My bent thoughts, why bent? Like and the air. Yeah. And why bent if you're trying to pray? On your knees. On your knees, yeah. So he's trying to bend his thoughts to God. He's on his knees trying to think of God, but his thoughts are going in all sorts of different directions. They fly asunder like a bow breaking, but it also means they go off in different directions. Again, everyone has had that experience. You're trying to concentrate on something, but you're thinking about a million other things and not the thing you're supposedly that you wish to be concentrating on. <coughs> so each of his thoughts went its own way. Some went to the idea of pleasure, some to the idea of war, um, to excitement, to all sorts of things. None of them went towards God. Um, I want to now just go back to the first stanza for a second to ask you, what do you think of the word silent in the phrase silent ears? When my devotions could yeah, not pierce thy silent ears. Well, do you really not know what it means or do you not know how it could mean that? I don't know how in what are, is there, are there, is there silence in the ears of God? Like, there is no way to... Well, it would imply that God's ears can speak. Yeah. Yeah. Which, can they? Well, wow, he's God, yeah. <laughs> the deity with the talking ears. Um, but what does it mean? Metaphorically, we have no trouble with it, right? I mean, it's not, it's not like you don't say, oh, my God, that's so grotesque when you read that. You have to at least a little bit have it flagged for you to notice that there's something slightly off about it. I just think it means silence in the atmosphere. Of yeah. It's, it's like... So what this is known as as a figure of speech, um, and again now since we're talking about figures and prefiguration and so on, um, I should tell you that um, we always we talk about figures of speech, metaphors and similes and so on as figures of speech. Um, there's actually a technical but an important distinction between figures of speech and figures of thought. And um, this is actually a figure of thought rather than a figure of speech. So what a figure of thought is, is usually we use the term figure of speech to talk about figures of thought. What a figure of thought is, is something that if you were analyzing it with perfect logical rigor, it would make no sense or it would simply say the wrong thing. Um, it would say the opposite of um, what it meant to say. So if you say something like, I could care less, um, that is, uh, which is a riff, as you all know, on I couldn't care less. Um, I could care less is like, so you care. Um, and, but no one uses it that way. Um, and that's partly because it's a figure of thought. Um, generally, though, figures of thought are more about using words in, um, in, in an order that doesn't quite make sense. Um, often idiomatic, but in this case not idiomatic. So the figure of thought that's being used here is called transferred epithet um, or analogy. You don't have to um, take notes on this. 
but it, um, the Greeks named it Enelage, E-N-A-L-L-A-G-E. And what it means is when the adjective goes with the wrong noun. Um, that's why it's called transferred epithet. So you would talk about something like uh, the, uh, 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 the textbook or canonical example is the bloodied cries of infants. You know, there was slaughter, and you could hear the bloodied cries of infants everywhere. And you know without thinking that what that means is the cries of bloodied infants. Um, but somehow it's more powerful to get the blood in early. It's not that you're thinking, oh, yes, those cries are dripping blood, but it's that the whole idea of the cries of infants is governed um, by the thought of, bloody, of, of, of blood. And so you say the bloodied cries of infants, and it's powerful, but if you analyze the rhetoric there, it's, a, it's what's called a transferred epithet. Um, bloodied goes with infants, not with cries, but we totally accept it going with cries. Um, so in this case, you're getting something like that. It's, um, my devotions could not pierce thy ears because you responded with silence to me. When my devotions could not um, pierce your ears and elicit from you anything but silence. That's what simply saying silent ears does. Um, but there's a theological point that Herbert is making here also, which is something that um, we've talked about before, um, which is that Herbert, um, we'll see this in another poem, um, which ends, Oh, my dear Lord, though I am clean forgot, let me not love thee if I love thee not. That is, punish me by making, you, by making me not love you if I don't love you. And notice the um, oddness of that. That is, if I fail to love you, then punish me by making me fail to love you. Um, the oddness of that has to do with a theological, uh, with Herbert's central, not Herbert's, but his whole, um, the whole um, central theological idea of this kind of Protestantism, which is that what God does, this is predestination, if you have faith in God, that's not your doing, that's God's doing. God gave you faith in him. And that faith that he gave you in him is his grace. He gave you his grace by giving you faith in him. So that if you are worried, we talked about this before, if you're worried about whether you are saved or not, the very fact that you're worried is a sign that you're saved because that means you believe. If you're worried, you're worried because you believe. And if you believe, it's because God gave you the faith that you have that makes you believe. And because God gave you that faith, that means you're predestined for salvation. If, however, you take that as a reason not to worry, you're in trouble. Because if you're not worried, then you don't have faith. Those with faith are worried. So there's a kind of um, spiral of anxiety that true believers have, because if they're ever sure that they're true believers, then that's a pretty good sign that they're not. 
But if they start worrying that maybe they're a little, being a little complacent, and if they start worrying that they um, have thought of themselves as true believers, and if they start wondering, am I really a true believer, that's good. That's a good thing. So essentially what you have here is um, a really um, <clears throat> um, strong and, um, and intense and probing and deep meditation on anxiety in a whole lot of these Protestant poems. We've seen it already in Dunn. Dunn um, begs for God to ravish him. Um, Dunn begs for God to um, help him out of abundance of his grace. Dunn begs for God to make him feel that he's a sinner so that he can repent. Um, but you would only feel that you were a sinner if you thought of unbelief as a sin. And um, you would only think of unbelief as a sin if, there was, if you had enough grace to believe. If you believed that unbelief was a sin, it's because you, you were a believer. So anxiety is saving for these poets, but only as long as you stay anxious about whether it's real anxiety or not. And so anxiety is both saving and endless at the same time. If anxiety comes to an end, that's when you should become anxious. And if you do become anxious enough to achieve endless anxiety, that's what you want. So there can be moments of saving, but they have to be moments that, are, that don't um, um, simply end anxiety and make you complacent but that make you think even more deeply about who you are as a soul or as a subject or as a self, how you feel, what your attitude towards yourself is, what your attitude towards your own emotions are, whether those emotions are what you want them to be, um, whether those emotions um, are real enough in your relation to others and to God. Um, all of this causes a really intense inwardness in the Protestant poets, and um, in Herbert especially. Um, one of the, again, what's, what's completely modern about Herbert is the intense inwardness of his poetry. Um, so, um, again, you can see that in um, the structure of um, Aaron Dressing, um, in the fact that he's anxious about himself, but in being anxious about himself, he needs God, and in needing God, um, that need is what he dresses himself in. And that's also, as I say, what makes him um, good as a minister. So God's silent ears, what's captured what's concentrated and compressed into that phrase, silent ears, is that if God's ears were not silent, Herbert would feel that his prayer was real. That is, um, that he's unable to pray, and his inability to pray he figures as God's ears being silent. 
it's his own silence that God's silent ears represent. His own silence not in the sense of, oh, I'm such a quiet being, but his own silence as in, I'm not saying the real thing I should be saying, which is my own prayer. My words fly up, my thoughts remain below, words without thoughts, never to heaven. All right. Um, you know what it's from? Okay, nice. Um, who's saying it? Claudius. Act two, scene. Yeah, you're just guessing. I can tell. It's Act three, scene three. I knew it. You were guessing. Too. No, I know it's Act three, scene three. <laughs> act three, scene two is the mouse trap, and Act yes, three, scene yes, three. Yes, yeah. Could we read a different type of? Um, Anxiety in Herbert, because I'm, I'm just reminded, I can't remember which poem it is when he says that, um, you know, God, you can't be blind to my faults because, you know, that would take away from your, your power and impotence, so of course you can see me. And so by Herbert saying that, you know, saying that God has these silent ears, could it be a type of, you know, subtle criticism of God insofar as, well, if you didn't want silent ears, <laughs> you 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 could hear me. And so, is there that kind of critique as well? Like, why you know, it, it's within your power to hear me. Then why can't you be more generous to hear me? Yeah, but then um, as long as you take <coughs> the next step, which is that um, that criticism of God, which he will do plenty of. Um, and we'll, maybe we should look at the poem, The Collar, next. But criticism of God, which he will do plenty of, um, becomes a source of anxiety, um, which is, I can't believe that I bridled like this. It must be because I'm not saved. And um, so he bridles a lot. There's no question that he bridles a lot. Um, but um, that bridling doesn't become for him, never becomes for him. And this is, again, part of what's so powerful about um, his, you know, and even proto-Freudian about his analyses, where I don't mean, you know, oh, it's all about sex and God has a big cigar, um, um, but that, um, you know, one of the, one, you could say one of Freud's great insights is the things you think will set you free don't. They make you feel worse rather than better. Everything you, every um, thing you attempt to do as a gesture of freedom is actually something that increases rather than decreases anxiety. If psychoanalysis is going to free you from some of these things, it's not going to do it um, in the way that um, you've attempted to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so freeing yourself, rejecting God far from having the effect of um, giving you freedom um, gives you... Um, increases your anxiety, your theological anxiety, rather than mitigating it. And um, that, you know, that's essentially what Freud says about people's relation to the most oppressive um, psychic specters um, um, in their lives. And, um, but that's what Herbert is thinking through. I mean, he's, he's so amazingly valuable and powerful as a poet not I mean I suppose if you're religious he's he's powerful and valuable as a religious poet but even if you're completely secular um, or atheist what makes him so powerful as a poet is that what he's thinking about is um, 
is human experience and the human mind um, and our relation to others and our experiences of guilt and remorse and um, a sense that um, guilt is close to love or love always has a component of guilt within it and, uh, and um, a sense that what is um, hard about love is that if you don't feel guilty that you don't love someone, then you don't love them. That is, if you do love someone, there'll always be elements of guilt about whether you really love them or not. And so it's not that you can free yourself from that guilt um, by loving purely enough. Um, trying to love purely enough will only increase the sense of guilt. I mean, that's one thing that you get in Herbert. He's talking about God, but it doesn't have to be about God. Um, or you can redefine God as, you know, 20th century philosophers like Levinas redefine God as the other, as um, the person to whom you owe love. Um, so it's not that, you know, we can say God is who you owe love to, but that can then um, redesignate what God is rather than um, what direction your love should go. Um, and um, Herbert is there with all of that. There's almost nothing you can say about love, I don't think, that you won't find in Herbert. Um, and by making God the object of his love, um, what he is doing for us is just saying, take that love seriously. It's not like having a crush on someone. That's not, that's not what he's describing. Um, because, well, I guess people do have crushes on God, but there are very few... Um, Poems about having a crush on God. <laughs> Don does. Ravished me three persons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but um, okay, you could, that that's Maybe interesting. Maybe not a crush; it's more like a fetish. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, I, I love the idea of uh, done at a party like in Dazed and Confused. <laughs> <laughs> There's Matthew McConaughey playing God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so. Um, so God's silent ears is for Dunn, um, I mean for Herbert, the sense that um, he's not being heard and he knows he's not being heard because if he were being heard, he would be praying, but he can't pray. And God's hearing is what makes him pray um, because that's where grace and faith come from. So each took his way. Each of his thoughts took his way. Some would to pleasures go, some to the wars and thunders of alarm. So he was, he was daydreaming when he was trying to pray. As good go anywhere, they say, as to be numb both knees and heart in crying night and day, come, come, my God, oh, come, but no hearing. So who's the they there? <clears throat> the priest, the religious. The thoughts? Yeah, each uh, took his own way. Some would to pleasures go, some to the wars and thunders of alarms. And here's why. As good go anywhere. To pleasures, to the wars and thunders of alarms. As good go anywhere, <coughs> they say. They're explaining that. As good 
go anywhere, they say, is to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day, come, come, my God, oh, come, but no hearing. Yeah. It's also similar to um, the idea of, like, um, in, I forget which story, but Jesus talking about how people who just cry out, Lord, Lord, but don't mean it, and that's yeah. kind of what his thoughts are doing. Yes, exactly. Like just crying out to cry out, but not Lord. Right. It's for yeah. And some just let their cry for Christ to come and find them, but when he comes, they don't know how to go. Uh huh. Yeah. So here it's um, what they're saying is, of course, you can you can be on your knees and cry, "Come, come, my God, oh come!" But you're not being heard, and we're just going to go daydreaming. So the thoughts are taking responsibility for the fact that they're not thoughts about God, and they're doing it in some anger. Um, that's what you were you were pointing out, Han. That that is, they're saying, trying to call upon God to come, but he's not hearing. No hearing, that is, no response. Um, So why not go all these other places? Now notice um, that the thoughts, basically, they say something. And here's what they say. As good go anywhere, so let's just hear, hear what the thoughts say in their own words. As good go anywhere as to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day, but no hearing. Those are the thoughts speaking their own words. Now the stanza has more than those words. It has the speech tag, they say. So as good go anywhere, anywhere, they say. So the thoughts aren't saying those words, they say, but the stanza is. As to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day, and these are now not the thoughts' words, but what the prayer is trying to say in his prayer, come, come, my God, O come. And then the thoughts say, but no hearing. Now what Herbert is doing here is he is structuring this stanza so that the rhymes occur in the stanza, that is, Come rhymes with benumb and say rhymes with day, so that the rhymes in the stanza are not the rhymes in what the thoughts say, but in the stanza's description of what the thoughts are saying. In other words, the thoughts are not able to rhyme, but the stanza gives them a context, puts them in a framework where what the thoughts say will rhyme. So the prayer, come, come, my God, oh, come, rhymes with the thought's complaint that they are benumbing their knees and heart. And the speech tag, here's what the thoughts say, that is the report that the stanza tells you of what the thoughts are saying, rhymes with the thoughts phrase night and day. So what you're getting here is a little allegory in rhyme of God's grace taking something that by itself is not a poem and turning it into something that rhymes. So 
by adding they say and come, come, my God, oh, come to the thought's own words, what you get are four lines that rhyme. We're still not there. We have but no hearing. That's the thought still speaking. And then Herbert goes on, oh, that thou shouldst give dust a tongue. Why dust? Yes, what we are, dust thou art, not dust thou shalt return. Oh, that thou shouldst give dust a tongue to cry to thee and then not hear it crying. He can't believe it that you gave dust a tongue to cry to thee and then not hear it crying. All day long my heart was in my knee, but no hearing. So what does my heart was in my knee mean? Yeah, I was, on, I was on my knees praying. All day long, my heart was in my knee, but no hearing. Now, what's happened with those two but no hearings? With what? Notice that, that um, both the last two stanzas end with the same phrase, but no hearing. Does that start looking like the beginning of a rhyme? That is that repetition? What if it, you can imagine that if it were Ben Johnson, it might go something like, as good go anywhere, they say, as to be numb, both knees and heart and crying night and day, come, come, my God, oh, come, but no hearing, oh, that thou shouldst give dust a tongue to cry to thee and then not hear it crying. All day long, my heart was in my knee um, and still endearing or something. doesn't quite work. But you would hear a rhyme between the stanzas. Now here we don't quite get that because we get repetition rather than rhyme, but no hearing, but no hearing. But we are getting a structure that we didn't have before, the kind of structure that rhyme gives you. That is, we have disorder and of alarms, nothing like a rhyme, of alarms and but no hearing, nothing like a rhyme, but then but no hearing, but no hearing which starts looking like something is happening here, just as in this stanza. It starts, look like, starts to look like something is happening when we get the um, stanza piecing out what the thoughts say and making them rhyme. So therefore my soul lay out of sight, untuned, unstrung, my feeble spirit unable to look right, like a nipped blossom, hung, discontented. So clearly it doesn't rhyme. But metrically, you'll notice but no hearing, discontented, are a lot better metrically than of alarms and disorder. So metrically, the poem is starting to gather into something that works, something that would be formally not jarring. And then we get the last stanza. Oh, cheer and tune my heartless breast. That is disheartened breast. Oh, cheer and tune my heartless breast. Defer no time that so thy favors granting my request if you make it possible for me to pray is what he's saying. Oh, cheer and tune my heartless breast, defer no time, that so thy favors granting my request. My request is that I should be able to pray and be heard. And 
if I'm heard, I will feel like I'm praying. That's the, that's the virtuous circle here. I will feel that I'm praying if you answer my prayers, which are that I should feel that I'm praying. So, O oh, cheer and tune my heartless breast, deferred no time, that so thy favors granting my request, <clears throat> they and my mind may chime. Your favors and my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. So what happens at the end? Yeah, so, so his rhyme gets mended. Good. Um, now, and that's because the reason it's off is because his mind, the chime in his mind's off because it's not, go, it's not like there's no noise because he's not praying because yeah. God will listen. Yeah. So then when the chime goes, he has rhythm and it will. Yeah. Uh, so, so the poem has come together, which means that his prayer to be able to pray has been answered. And his prayer to be able to pray is a prayer that they in my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. Um, notice that it's not only chime and rhyme, and of course time, that rhyme and chime together just in the nick of time. But notice mind may chime, mend my rhyme. That is mind and mend. One letter difference. Yeah, may and my. One letter difference. And then chime and rhyme. So one what? Difference, but in, in the spelling of that era, it could probably be C H Y M E. Yeah, or it can be. Um, oh, the, how's rhyme? No, you have this book, right? Oh, I may have a different. Why is it spelled? Oh, okay. Do they spell it that way? Well, rhyme here is spelled R I M E. Advertently, or is it? Yeah, advertently. Yes. But they didn't spell it that way. Um, yeah, it, it was frequently spelt that way. Oh, okay. Like the rhyme of the ancient mariner is R-I-M-E. Um, it's, uh, I think it's now spelled R-H-Y-M-E in order to, I know it's spelt that way. No, I mean in this. Yeah, okay. I, I think that that's the way it's been regularized as spelling, partly in order to preserve its um, etymology as rhythm and partly in order to distinguish it from um, frost, which is R-I-M-E. That is, you would have rhyme-covered cars, which would be sweet if they were just like, you know, day and May and May and stay all over my car. It was so cold this morning, my car was covered with rhyme, but I liked it. Um, but um, it, this was a perfectly permissible spelling. Um, and so it would be a one phoneme difference, chime to rhyme, C-H as a single sound to R. Um, but notice that what you would say is, what is the chime and rhyme rhyme with each other? What would you say the relation of mind and mend and may and my would be? They're homophones? Almost. Um, they're close to homophones. So instead of saying they rhyme with each other, we might say they... Time <laughs> with each other. Good. So the point is you get, there, there's a way in which he's getting paid in spades. That is that if you rhyme the word rhyme, um, it feels like the way he's doing it here, on the one hand, yay, it finally rhymes. On the other hand, it does, there does feel, or there might still feel like a little asymmetry there. That is, that if rhyme rhymes with another word, 
then the word that really counts is rhyme. Um, because whatever word it rhymes with, time or lime or... Um, or what? Rhine? No. Crime. Um, slime. Slime. <laughs> um, those wouldn't be the key word. The key word would be rhyme. But if the idea here is that rhyming is when everything comes together, rather than a rhyme being something that just um, pieces out or braces or connects or supplements whatever came before it. Um, if the rhyme is where everything is supposed to come together, then the rhyme and the word it rhymes with should have equal status. But that's really hard to do since rhyme is the word that describes what's happening. So how does rhyme have equal status with the word that it rhymes with when the very fact that it's rhyming is what makes the idea of rhyme prominent? So the word chime kind of does it already because it can be treated as a synonym for rhyme, but it isn't quite. And so, you know, if Herbert had, had said something like, that, they in my mind may chime and fix this rhyme, <laughs> um, we would say, okay, that's really cool. It rhymes at the end, and I get it. That's wonderful. Um, but he goes way beyond that to make us see that what's happening in those last two lines is not only a rhyme, but also a chime, that both chime and rhyme have equal status as descriptive words for the end of the poem. It's not that rhyme saves the day, um, which it shouldn't quite, because a single word shouldn't quite save the day, when the whole point is the doubleness of the very act or um, um, incident of rhyming, um, the very fact of rhyming, is that both words here should have equal status. My, I speak, you listen. I pray, you grant my prayer. But if the granting is simply a granting that occurs in one word, then the prayer itself doesn't have the same importance as granting the prayer gives it. it should be giving it. So formally, by, by infusing both chime and rhyme with equal importance here, which he does through chiming mend my with mind may, that is, you can even hear them almost as, as mirror images of each other. Mend my mind may. Um, that chiming makes chime and rhyme equally words which chime with each other, or words that rhyme with each other in lines that chime with each other. So both chiming and rhyming are treated equally, and they chime with each other and rhyme with each other. So, sorry, <laughs> it's just was, too much. Sorry, no. That's okay. Um, and again, that's that's um, typical of what Herbert will do. It's it's really not an accident that he says, "Mend my rhyme, mind may chime." Um, they those those really do go together. Okay, let's look at the collar. Um, maybe we can do two more poems. Um, Today and then we'll obviously do more on Friday. That's on page 276.
So um, the crucial thing, there's a long footnote telling you all the possibilities for the word collar. Uh, the crucial thing is he's talking about a priest collar. Um, that is, um, you know that you can recognize a priest because um, it's actually you wear the collar backwards. Um, what priests do is they wear standard shirt collars turned around backwards. Um, so that's why they have uh, the, the um, white um, cylindrical look on their throats. Um, there is a, um, do you guys know who Ellery Queen is? So Ellery Queen was a detective. detective yeah, Detective Magazine, good. Um, so the first Ell Ellery Queen novel I read was, um, I guess his most famous, that's why it was the first one I read. It's called The Case of the Chinese Oranges. And Ellery Queen, the detective. Um, the Ellery Queen stories are also supposedly written by um, someone named Ellery Queen, but they're not. Um, but so the detective comes in, and there's this bizarre murder where there's a person um, in a room in which all his clothes are put on backwards and all the books on all the bookshelves are reversed so that their pages out and everything is turned over and so there's just an entire room in which everything is the bizarro world version of it. Um, everything is completely backwards and the solution to the crime Ellery Queen realizes, do you mind the spoiler? Go for it. Because you might just want to read it right after class. Is that um, they don't know who the dead man is, and once they find out who the dead man is, it'll be easy to solve the crime, is that Ellery Queen realizes that all of this has been done in order to try and camouflage the fact that there's no tie, that the guy has no tie, necktie, um, cravat. I don't know if you guys know what those are, but in the 20th century, people used to wear them to job interviews. In the 20th century, actually, people used to wear them to classes. Um, and the reason is that he's a priest. And so what happens is Ellery Queen figures out that he was a priest, that he was murdered, and that the, then the murderer reversed everything else. The only thing he didn't reverse was the already reversed collar. But he reverses everything else in order to disguise the fact that um, he's a priest um, and that he did have this reversed collar. Also, if you've ever seen this, the fabulous movie Top Hat, you can actually see the see someone turning his collar around in order to impersonate a priest. Um, so you should see that. That's not that's a spoiler too, but not that bad. So collar there means clerical collar. Um, but it's also a pun on the word anger. Um, and collar, C-H-O-L-E-R. As in, in my collar, I um, ripped off my collar. And that's essentially what he's doing. Um, and again, notice how conversational this is. He's telling a story. I struck the board and cried, no more. So he's sitting at table, and he just says, enough of this. Boom. I struck the board and cried, no more. I will abroad. And this is one of those poems where he's imagining the possibility of freedom from the oppression of um, commitment. I struck the board and cried, no more. I will abroad. What? Shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free. Free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? So am I always going to be begging? Remember that that's the word he uses in redemption, that he made a suit under um, his old lord, not thriving. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood? 
and not restore what I've lost with cordial fruit? So is that all I'm going to get? Are thorns rather than fruit to, to pierce me, to make me bleed, rather than to restore um, all the labor that I put into them? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? So do I have to live this way? So he's, this is a poem of sheer bridlement against the life that he has to live. As a priest, collared, that is um, collared as in um, unable to be free, like having a leash on or having a dog's collar on. That's how he's seeing the priest's collar, and that's what's making him so angry. So collar there, therefore, means anger, priest's collar, and what the priest's collar represents to him, which is um, being collared the way a cop would collar you. Um, Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay? All blasted, all wasted? And the answer to that rhetorical question is, not so, my heart. But there is fruit. So notice that what he wants is to restore all his labor with cordial fruit, that is fruit for the heart. Um, cordial means from the heart. If you sign something cordially yours, it means it's coming from the heart. It's heartfelt. Um, not so my heart, but there is fruit. And thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. So you've wasted all this time slaving for God. Slaving is a minister, but enough. Recover all thy side-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Stop worrying about morality. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands. What's a rope of sands, do you think? Time. Okay, so you're thinking of the hourglass. Yeah. Um, there's probably um, some hint of that. But I think also it's just a beautiful description of something that looks like a rope, but it's just made of sand. It can't possibly bind you, except that you think it's binding you and you don't try to um, free yourself. If you pull on a rope of sands, it won't hold you at all. It's made of sand. It's not coherent. So forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made. So you've imprisoned yourself with these ridiculous petty thoughts of religion, and you made this Cajun rope of sands out of petty thoughts, which petty thoughts have made, and made to the good cable. So you thought this was good cable when it's just sand, to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. So you, you imprisoned yourself with this rope of sands because you decided you were just going to be, oh, so religious, so God-fearing, so God-loving. Um, I read the other day that um, old people, when asked what they regret, is there stuff that they regret about life, um, they always regret how moral they've been. Um, 
all the opportunities for um, immoral fun that they deny themselves. Um, not that I'm recommending <laughs> that you guys be more immoral. I'm just mentioning this. That's just a reflection on how everyone thinks they're very moral. As they yeah, it could be, <laughs> right? Like Hitler and the bunker saying, ha, had I known I would have killed more Jews. <laughs> um, oh, my God. <laughs> So, not, which petty thoughts have made and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law while thou didst wink and wouldst not see? Away! Take heed! I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there. Tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. So he's saying, you know, I even deserve being collared like this because I just won't live. I won't allow myself to live, and I deserve it, but no more, none of that. Now I'm going to free myself. Um, it's a little like the movie Anger Management. He's the, oh, like the Adam Sandler <laughs> character in Anger Management. Um, but God would be played by Jack Nicholson here. Um, he that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load, but, so that's the end of what he said to himself, but as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methoughts I heard one calling, child. And I replied, my lord. So this is the opposite um, or the converse of the sense that, oh, no, I don't know if I'm praying deeply enough um, God isn't responding to my prayers and I worry that I'm not really praying and that makes me worry and the fact that I'm glad I'm worrying is another reason to worry and I just can't get out of this worry because God won't reply to my prayers. Here, he's recognizing something else about himself which is that his anger is like in denial in fact an attempt to get God to respond to him. His very refusal and rejection of God, his saying, enough of this. I'm so angry at what I've done. That anger shows that he believes. You're only angry at an authority that you think has authority over you. And that anger is the anger of a child. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. That is, childish anger here is also a sign that he believes in God. And that's good also because what, what it says to people is if you get angry at God, if you think you're rejecting God, if you feel that your attitude towards God is um, um, sinful hatred, all of that is actually a sign that you want his love that you care and so here too there's an amazing sense again you don't have to see this religiously but an amazing sense at just the point where he is asserting with the most insistence that he's now an adult he Herbert is recognizing that assertions that one is an adult come out of the child within one that if you're saying look at me I'm an adult then you're still in touch with what's good about you, which is your, the child within you. Um, that it's people who aren't saying, look how cool I am, I'm an adult, who become the monsters of the world. 
But those who want to be adults, the very fact that they desire it, that's not an adult desire, and it's good. It's a good thing that it's not an adult desire. It means you're still the child that it's good to be. All right, more Friday.